I'm not going to um, be there this morning, but shortly I'm going to be in the book of Judges. And just based on some things that were said earlier, it reminded me of a couple of verses in the second chapter of Judges, where in the second verse, the angel of the Lord says that I brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers and I said I will never break my covenant with you so God this is the angel of the Lord this is pre-incarnate Jesus and he says I'll never break my covenant with you and then in a couple of verses later he said he talks about your great sin and how rebellious you are. So you've got a tension here between God saying, I'm never going to break my covenant with you, and saying you're a sinful people and I cannot abide sin. So what's he going to do? It's like God is saying, look at the position you're putting me in. I've sworn I'm never going to break my word for you. You're always going to be my people. But I've also sworn that I'm holy and I will not abide with sin. What am I going to do with you people? And you see this tension all the way through Scripture until you get to the solution in Jesus. Where he judges sin. He will not let it go unpunished. But he's not going to forsake his people. And he judges sin in Jesus. All the sin is put on Jesus because God is not going to say, never mind, it's no big deal. I don't care that much about it. I care about it infinitely. And I'm going to judge it. But you see it starting out even before judges, but it's put there. And you wonder, how in the world is God going to get around this? How is he going to bless his people, keep his covenant, never forsake them, yet judge their sin? And that's where I intend to be later on. But for today, we're going to be in a few verses 
in Ecclesiastes, which we've been before. And just like all of Scripture, words matter. But before I get into the seriousness, let me read this to you. There was a woman who went on a short-term mission trip to Kenya, helping the missionaries there. Before she left, she stopped at a remote village where she attended a medical clinic. As the native women outside the clinic began to sing, began to sing together, she found herself deeply moved by their beautiful singing. The harmonies and rhythms seemed worshipful indeed. She was so moved she began to cry. Since she wanted to capture the moment in her memories, she turned to her bilingual friend and asked, Could you please translate the words to that absolutely beautiful song? Her friend stared at her and respectfully replied, If you boil the water, you won't get dysentery. (laughs) Words matter. Just because it sounds wonderful on the outside, you need to know what's going on. We need to examine words carefully. Sometimes we don't. Often we don't. You know, we've looked at Ecclesiastes a couple of times and have seen that it's a book that both troubles us and confuses us on the surface. It does this partially because some of what it says seems to contradict other portions of Scripture. For example, Proverbs 13.21 says, Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. We like that. It makes sense. The wicked are going to get what they deserve. But if we go to Ecclesiastes, one verse in Ecclesiastes, 8.14, tells us, there's a vanity, an emptiness, that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity, emptiness, futility. So which is it? Do sinners get disaster and the righteous receive good? Or do the righteous suffer from the deeds of the wicked and the wicked get what what should belong to the righteous? The answer is yes and both. Disaster, disaster does pursue sinners. God never forgets and he always judges sin. He also never forgets his people who honor and trust him. But now, under the sun, here on earth, 
in a world where people live, where they, they live their lives apart from God, the wicked often prosper, and the righteous often are scorned. Eden is not here anymore. In this world, this world of not Eden, this world under the sun, everything's upside down. Solomon doesn't use Ecclesiastes to describe life as we expect it to be, or life as he desires it to be, or what good theology says it ought to be. He describes life the way it is. Where people choose self rather than God. Again and again in Ecclesiastes, we've seen that the phrase is used all is vanity or all is emptiness or all is futility by saying this Solomon hopes that the people that are listening to him will take his words to heart and will discover what's true about the way things are under the sun and he doesn't just tell us what's true he shows us he says I'm going to live this and the understanding is that Solomon wrote this toward the end of his life and before he wrote this he had drifted away from God and he had gotten into all kinds of worldly things where he did things like this where he says I tested myself with pleasures and found it to be empty he tried wine he tried building many houses he tried making gardens and building parks he heaped gold and silver to himself, many, many wives and many slaves. And then 2.11 in Ecclesiastes, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He came back to himself after doing all of these things and he shares Ecclesiastes with us that all these things under the sun are empty. Life under the sun, life that doesn't honor God, is striving after the wind. Solomon tested it all and he came up empty apart from God. In the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes, it begins with talking about the house of God, the church, and what we do when we go into it. Churches ought to be places that point us to God. They ought to be places where the word of God is shared and the character of God is shared with us too. And thankfully, a lot of churches are just that. But sadly, a few do more to drive us away from the faith than to draw us closer to it. One poet once wrote, once wrote to a monk that at one time he resisted allowing his sons to go to church because he didn't want to make atheists out of them. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But that's what happens when a false gospel is proclaimed. And a false gospel is no gospel at all. 
It twists the truth and it drives people away from God rather than drawing him, drawing them toward him. And Jesus affirms this very thing when he spoke of woe to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious ones, because they turned people away from him and his righteousness. You know, even genuine disciples can act like devilish children sometimes. Look at Peter. Look at us. We don't act the way we're supposed to act as the children of God a lot of times. Ecclesiastes, the first three verses, chapter 5, says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be tasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Guard your steps. When you go into the house of God. You know, Solomon's not foolish. He's not naive. He understands what the church is like under the sun. In this place that's not Eden anymore. And he wants us to understand what it's like too. Church under the sun requires caution. It requires that we be alert. Even the church that worships God, God as he's revealed in the Bible, requires caution. Because why? Because we're fallen people. And we can say things that are not true. Again, verse 1 says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they are doing evil. And then reading verse 3, along with verse 4, which we didn't read before, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. Verse 1 says to guard your steps, while verses 3 and 4 talk about fools. Church people are often a mixed group. Some wise and others not so much. The foolish things that we say during the week don't come to an end when we walk into the church. There's no moat. There's no force field that when we walk into the church we're separated from the world. None of there's nothing that prevents the foolishness that characterizes us in the world to stay away from us when we come into the church. Jesus said the same things. He said weeds and tares excuse me, weeds and wheat, tares and wheat would grow together 
in God's fields until the harvest comes. That's what he says in Matthew 13. Quickly, just to refresh your memory. In Matthew 13, starting in 24, he says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while this, but while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares, the weeds, became evident also. The slaves of the land landowner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both of them to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, and later he says the reapers are the angels, First gather up the weeds and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So until he comes again, the weeds and the tares, I mean the weeds and the wheat grow together. And that includes the church. You have both. Some of us like to think that no weeds are allowed in the house of God. And other of us are surprised to find sinners in the church. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, doesn't share that view. And some of us are shocked if somebody claims to follow God and go to, goes to church and then he does or he says something dishonoring to God dishonoring to the neighbors because this happens some people have left not only the church but they've left their belief in God also again they're surprised to find sin in the church and Solomon again was not surprised Scripture says we're made for community. In Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, it says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. But if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. If we don't go to church, we'll try to connect with people in some other way. We'll find a group. We'll find some kind of organization, some kind of club, some kind of chat room where we have companionship. But when we do that, we're going to find out 
that folly and fools exist in all these places too. You can't get away from them because they're everywhere. They're everywhere under the sun. And most of the time, the greatest fights that you will find are not in a church, but they're in political gatherings. They're in church PTA groups. They're in little league fields, not in the church. No matter where, people under the sun exhibit folly, foolishness. Isolation doesn't work either because left to ourselves, we only have ourselves and we don't like that very much either. The only thing left is truth-telling. We have to admit there is folly in the church. There's foolishness in the church. Yes, people in the church can wound each other. And sometimes the biggest fools are the ones carrying the biggest Bibles. We know that because we've been that. Every one of us. Whether we like to admit it or not. Like Paul said, I've been chief. So, it's not a good feeling. It just happens to be the truth. Draw near to listen rather than give the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools are empty sacrifices. It's going where the going it's going through the ritual without any kind of understanding of the meaning of the ritual. The fool thinks interpretation or participation in religious ceremonies justifies him as being close to God. But it's not sacrifices, but mercy that God calls us to. A scripture we're familiar with in Psalm 51 says, For you do not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. But you are not, you are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You know, too often people in the church think they're disliked because they're more righteous than the ones outside the church. But sometimes it's because of their arrogant behavior that they're disliked. And that's what we have to guard against, everyone in the church. Jesus put it into a parable in Luke 18. Two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. The religious man, the Pharisee, spent a lot of time listing his good deeds and why God ought to be pleased with him. While the tax collector, a self-confessed sinner, called on God to be merciful. And the moral of the story is that the sinner, not the self-righteous man, is justified by God. Draws close to God. Is cleared of all sin by God. We're not men as a church to cover our ugly ways. 
Christians, or the church rather, is meant to put a stop to our denial about who we are and what the church is. But while the church can do harmful things, Solomon shows that the location of the problem is not the church. The location of the problem is with the soul of every human being. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, but he found many, many plans to thwart the ways of God, to exalt self, and to turn away from what God called him to be. And the preacher says something else about foolish churchgoers. Their love of endless talk. He speaks of a fool's voice with many words in verse 3. He tells us in verse 7, But when dreams increase and words grow many, there's emptiness, there's vanity. Large quantities of church talk and large quantities of church activity don't indicate necessarily the presence of God or the blessing of God. Jesus tells us, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. In fact, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he gives us only a few words, a handful of words, that take less than a minute to read. He gives us the the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. You can read it in 30 seconds. This is how you pray. A fool in these verses in Ecclesiastes is not some fixed type of person, but one who acts in a certain way. In these verses, a fool is linked to the context of worship. He thinks God hears him or he hears us, because we talk a lot. Verse 3 seems to mean mean that there's an excess of talk, or that an excess of talk yields foolishness, folly. We think that taking God's name in vain means using curse words, but it means a whole lot more than that. For the most part, it has to do with saying that we follow God but living a life that shows we know very little of his character that's taking God's name in vain I'm a Christian now look at me do all these wicked things I'm a Christian I don't lie today what I do tomorrow that's taking God's name in vain we're slandering his character we're calling ourselves his and doing things that he hates. So the preacher tells us to guard our steps when we go to church because sometimes what we find there is foolishness, arrogance, and things that are displeasing to God. Church under heaven is not, or church under the sun rather, is not heaven. 
Solomon knows this, and we should know it too. We should also know that the presence of foolish people using God's name doesn't mean the absence of a genuine knowledge of God because God uses foolish people to accomplish his purposes. Otherwise, nothing would ever happen because we're all foolish. But Solomon's telling us, be cautious, guard your steps, don't be deceived by these things that happen. He says, when you go into the house of God, he doesn't say if you go into the house of God, he says when. When means something certain. We do it again and again. Going to the house of God isn't meant to be a rare occasion, a rare experience. It's also not meant to be that every time we go in the house of God, we we expect to see some spectacular miracle. When indicates a way of life. When you go into the house of God. Again and again and again. We stand against the foolishness of some churchgoers not by quitting, not by fighting. We counter foolishness by going to church wisely. We learn how to slow our tongues and quiet our hearts. Wise church going teaches us to listen. Teaches us to learn humility. In Solomon's day, the temple reminded everyone that God God didn't quit when Eden ceased to exist. He still met with his people. He still provided a place for them to gather together to honor him. There There wasn't a church in Eden. There was no church building in Eden. And there were no discontented people in Eden. All of Eden was a sanctuary where Adam and Eve could enjoy the glory, the presence of God. It was a sacred place. All of it was created for the delight of God. It was good. There wasn't any corner of Eden that had any decay or rot in it. It didn't exist. Eden is what the church is meant to be. A place where God draws near where we examine ourselves, we repent, we draw closer. The house of God, even though it's flawed because of the way we misuse it, still symbolizes the presence of God with us. And the fact that God has sustained the church how much more of a compelling case could there be that we're supposed to go to church? God has caused the church to exist, a place where he dwells with his people, where he meets with his people. What more could you say about why we should need to go to church? Do you want to meet with God? God has sustained the church all these years. Solomon knows this. And we know it too. We know that the house of God and God are not equal. Solomon prayed in front of everyone. 
But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Tear down the walls of the church and God stays. God remains. If we leave the building, God goes with us. That's why we can't honor God in the physical building and yet dishonor Him when we leave because God goes with us. You can't go out the door and then on Monday say, well, I'm not in church. I can do what I want to. God's with you. He dwells within. In Jesus' day, all the nations were not allowed in God's house. If they were, it was only by segregation in the classes of people. Sort of like on an airplane where you've got first class, second class, tourists, whatever. That was the temple at the time. People made money off the poor. Did Jesus stay at the temple? They sold goods. And the goods you had to have because God had commanded sacrifice, but they wouldn't let you buy the goods unless you bought it from them. Commerce, rather than prayer, was the norm. Jesus cried out against this. In Mark eleven seventeen, he says, says, and he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Access to the house of God has nothing to do with race, status, or how much theology you know. Access to the house of God required a payment from God that he made himself. The lamb that was slain pays for our sin and bids us to enter every time we open the door. And he wants us to, to listen when we come in. He wants us to know that he created us for a purpose. That we, were to know, that we are to know him and to enjoy him. The world is broken. It's not Eden. And he's created a house where we can come and he's going to show us wisdom and grace again. Not that we don't have to be careful. Not that we don't have to examine everything. But it's a place where God has said he will meet his people. the foolish work of those that would harm the church the foolish actions they're not going to last God knows what people do in his name he tells us that he has an alternative alternative way that opposes the wreckage under the sun he calms our heart 
and he quiets our voices. Jesus gives the grace freely. Somebody greater than Solomon is here. And just to sum it up, Solomon says, pay attention to God's word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. We're not going to a restaurant to meet our friends. We're in a place to meet God. How do you guard your steps? The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifices of fools. And the preacher says that people do not pay, who do not pay attention to how they worship God don't know that they're doing evil. And then he says, don't be hasty in word or impulse, impulsive in thought to, begin, to bring up a matter in the presence of God. So watch what we say. God is in heaven and we're here on earth. Remember the vast distance between ourselves and God. And it's not a distance in miles. It's a distance in character, in power, and in holiness. And the proverb in verse 3, which seems to be a little obscure, seems to mean that just as when someone is caught up in more and more business matters, it causes him to even dream about more business matters at night, in the same way, many words characterize a fool and his foolishness. The more you talk, the more you prattle on, without weighing your words as you go into the house of God, foolishness characterizes. The number of words is not the issue. The real issue is whether the words are sincere, true, and come from the heart. Psalms 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we can't point at anybody else and talk about their foolishness because it jumps out at us about how foolish that we've been and how our words have not been wise so often. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to just draw the people that belong to you closer and closer so that we recognize our faults, that we repent, that when we go into the house of the Lord, Lord, we are careful, we're circumspect, we're wise, and that we honor you. And I just pray that our hearts, Lord, might never draw closer to you, that you might wash us clean from our sins again and again, so that the debris of the world would not cling to us. And we just pray that we would honor your Son, and it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. page 8.